The next stage of the path of devotion is the path of Tantra, where in the beginning, in that first stage where we're invoking, we're trying to remember who God is. And then in the second stage, we're in this relationship with God. In the third stage, in this Tantra stage, everything is God, including you and me. Welcome to Healing at the Edge, a podcast featuring interviews, archive talks, and teachings on conscious living, conscious dying with Ramdev Dale Borglum, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Dale has been a meditation teacher for nearly 50 years and has been at the bedside of the dying and their loved ones for over 40 years. He was the director of the Hanuman Foundation and founded the first center for conscious dying in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's taught with Stephen Levine, Ram Dass, and countless others on the spiritual path. Dale is still working with the dying today. For more information, please visit livingdying.org. What I'd like to talk about today is the path of devotion. I know some of you are devotees of God, of Maharaji, of Hanuman, of Christ. And some of you are more into Buddhism. Some of you are more into self-inquiry. I was listening to a talk by a local Lama named Anam Tupton. He's a really beautiful guy. And he was saying, I'm going to tell you the secret to meditation. I'm going to tell you the secret to spiritual life. And he went on and on, kind of like there was a tease. And finally, he said, the, the secret to spiritual life is devotion to awareness. That without devotion to awareness, you're not going to have enough juice in your practice to be dealing with all of the difficulties that come up. Basically, what he's saying, and what I've been saying in another language, whether we're devotees of God or not, even if we're just trying to be present, following Ramdas's advice, be here now, or later in his life, he was saying, just die into loving awareness. Without devotion to the practice, we're going to get sidetracked and roadblocked so often that it's going to be extremely frustrating. St. Therese of Lusso. The little flower, the Catholic saint said, I felt it better to speak to God rather than about him, which is the problem that we're going to be facing today. We're going to be talking about God, but to the extent that I'm feeling enough devotion, can I be speaking to God right now? Can I, as I'm talking to you, am I talking about God or I'm talking to God? As you're listening to this, are you listening to stories about God or are you listening to God, right? Is it all God? Is there enough devotion that no matter how the talk turns out, if I start coughing a lot, which might happen at any moment, it's still God talking to God. There's a wonderful story. There's a, at the Lama Foundation in Taos, New Mexico. Anyway, the local Indians had a place right next to Lama Foundation. There's a beautiful old guy there named Grandpa Joe. He was very, very wise. They would bring him up to Lama Foundation to talk, and he would talk late in the afternoon. And a friend of mine was living up in Lama. She was living in a tent far away from where Grandpa Joe was speaking. And people noticed that there was a bear that was running around this part of the mountain. So my friend Saraswati became concerned that when she was walking home from Grandpa Joe, if it was too late at night, 
that maybe this bear would come and chew her up because he would talk uh, till the sun was going down. So she said, Grandpa Joe, if I should see a bear, what should I say to the bear? So the bear doesn't eat me up. And Grandpa Joe says, don't talk to bear, talk to God, right? That the, that the bear is God. And can we, can we remember that really all that we're doing here is, is talking to God? Can we remember that bliss of feeling connected when maybe right now we're feeling that a little bit? We're feeling the sense of satsang, of sangha, of connectedness. And maybe at the same time, where, oh, it's Saturday morning, Ramdev's talking. Uh, I hope it's better than the last one, but maybe it won't be, you know, whatever's going on in your mind. Do we have faith in how mindfulness leads to wisdom, which spirals into letting go of self-clinging? Can we remember those times when we've had devotion? And is there any reason why we can't feel that right now? Buddha, even Buddha himself, who is not, uh, somebody who talked a lot about love and devotion. He said, the awakening of faith or devotion is the dawn of realization, like a great light arising and shining within the heart. That devotion is the dawn of realization. Devotion to Buddha Dharma Sangha, devotion to the uh, Four Noble Truths. So I'm going to talk about devotion. I would like you to be able to translate it into your personal worldview of whether you're a lover of God or a lover of truth or a lover of awareness itself, it's all the same conversation. Without devotion, you're never going to feel any intimacy between yourself and the teachings or the lineage masters. Let me read a quote by a Zen master who early on in his life was a very almost militaristic Zen guy. He was German. This was back in the 50s. Later on, he became a great devotee of Christ. But early on, when he was really into Zen, he said the following. The person who, being really on the way, the way with a capital W, the person who really being on the way falls upon hard times in the world should not, as a consequence, turn to that friend who offers them refuge and comfort and encourages their own self to survive. Rather, they will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so they may endure the suffering and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible arise within them. In this lies the dignity of daring. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible arise within them. And this lies the dignity of daring. And I'm saying that without an open heart, it is very, very, very hard to over and over again expose yourself to annihilation. That the heart softens this requirement of ego death, of being annihilated, that who we think we are has to die. So you can die into space, spaciousness, or you can die into love. I find that dying into love is a much softer landing than dying into infinite spaciousness. 
although infinite spaciousness eventually will reveal itself to have the quality of love. What I'd like to do to fill this out, though, I mean, that's the basic idea, is how, how devoted are you and I to the truth of the Dharma in this moment? Maharaji said, serve me by always remembering God. He said, if you love God, you overcome all impurities. He didn't say, here's the way to fix this impurity and here's the way to fix that impurity. But if you love God, you overcome all impurities. A very simple, direct, not necessarily easy practice. But what we're going to talk about today is the path of devotion, the stages of devotion. There's the invocation or trust stage. There's the loving kindness, uh, juicy heart stage. There's the tantric stage, and there's even non-dual devotion. So we're going to go through those four stages. And I think when we have those understood in a loving way, that it really makes it easier to find what surrender is being asked for in the next moment. So the invocation stage of devotion, we could talk about as the the stage of practice that is really talked about in Vipassana meditation and Hinayana or Theravada Buddhism, where we're taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. We're taking refuge in the fact that freedom exists. As Buddha showed, there's a path to that, and there's a community of people who are on that path. But we don't necessarily feel that connection yet. We're invoking, we're reaching out. We're remembering, we're trusting that other people have felt that. Maybe right now, your heart is not completely open. Maybe right now, all you can do is remember a time when it was open, or you remember being with some saint or being out in nature when you just felt that total expansiveness. Is it possible then to reach out, to invoke, to not get lost in that feeling of disconnection, but use the feeling of disconnection, that lack of connectedness as the motivation, as the inspiration to really rip your heart open, to trust that there's something out there, that it's only one mind moment away. It's only one thought away. It's only one moment of letting go of this is who I think I am. What are you willing to receive? What are you willing to be touched by? What are you willing to reach out for? Uh, Once again, going back to that notion of Anaptupta of can we have devotion to awareness itself by even being lovingly with our lack of devotion, devotion begins to arise. Ramakrishna said, people shed a jug of tears for their wife and for their money. Who sheds a jug of tears for God? If you loved God as much as you loved your family and your bank account, you'd be enlightened right away. Okay, that may be an exaggeration, but I think there's some truth there that can we focus our deep yearning on this sense of connectedness? Once again, instead of having this worldview that you're over there and I'm over here and we're listening to a talk and giving a talk, how deeply can we drop into devotion right now? How deeply can we reach out for that connectedness? We must learn to trust the pain and the light. The pain itself is not separation from love. One of my main 
symptoms of having COVID is that I really can't feel my heart much right now. I've been lying in bed every night saying, Maharaji, I don't feel my heart. I'd kind of like to feel it again. I'd like to really feel that connectedness. I don't feel it. It's all, it's all a memory. I don't know why, but something about COVID brain fog and my ability to feel that expansive, juicy thing is really not there. The next stage that we're going to be talking about, that heart stage, is, is not really available. Can I love even that? Or do I get upset about that? Do I push away that? Do I think I'm a failure as a practitioner because my practice isn't as strong as COVID? We often protect our heart by shutting down, creating some armoring. Grief is the armoring of the heart. Again and again, you and I have opened our hearts. Again and again, you and I have been disappointed. God hasn't shown up. Our partner has disappointed. Our dream has been shattered. And going back to this quote that I, I bring up far too often, when Rumi says, grief is the garden of compassion. He's talking here about moving from this invocation stage where you don't feel love, where you're lost in separateness, into the stage of connectedness. Grief is the garden of compassion, transmuting feelings of grief and separation into feelings of compassion and connectedness. In this moment, can we connect? Can we begin to connect into the heart stage of practice? Can we water these seeds of innate tenderness? There is this path of devotion. We often think of devotion as my heart's open, there's a lot of love. If you read these Rumi poems or Hafiz poems or a lot of the Christian mystics, St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, they often talk about the closed heart. St. John of the Cross very beautifully talks about the dark night of the soul. When you're really not feeling God, you're really not getting any joy out of the world anymore. You're left with nothing. That's part of the path of devotion. If we fully inhabit that, then we, we, we more fully inhabit the heart when we get there. So let's move on to the more interesting part of devotion, which is when the heart really does begin to open. Maharaji said, I'm always in communion with you. Swami Nityananda said, be peaceful, I am everywhere. So what would it be like if we really believed that? What would it be really like if we're thinking, we're feeling, we're living, I am always in communion with you? That pure consciousness, the embodiment of infinite love is with us moment to moment to moment. Here's a, here's a short poem from Rumi. Endure your pain quietly. I am your remedy. Don't look at anyone except me because I am your true friend. Even if I kill you, don't say I have been killed. Instead, be grateful because I am the compensation for your life. And Kabir says, oh, friend, I love you. Think this over carefully. If you are in love, then why are you asleep? If you have found him, give yourself to him, take him. Why do you lose track of him again and again? If you are about to fall into heavy sleep anyway, why waste time smoothing the bed and arranging the pillows? Kabir will tell you the truth. This is what love is like. Suppose you had to cut off your head and give it to someone else. What difference would that make? And in fact, you do metaphorically have to cut off your head. You have to give up understanding. You have to give up knowing. That is a radical surrender into total loving awareness. 
a radical surrender into total loving awareness. St. Teresa of Lusso, again, the same person I quoted before, said, I fear only one thing, that I should keep my own will. That we die into loving God so much that it's God's will. Love sounds like a wonderful idea. Imagine having your heart open all the time. But at the same time, we're talking about annihilation of cutting off our head, cutting off where the ego lives, dying into connectedness, dying into connectedness with all that is. Ramakrishna said, devotion to God increases in the same proportion as attachment to sense objects decrease. To the extent we're stuck in the world, to that extent, we get disconnected from this sense of being with God. Maharaji said, if you want the chapati, don't eat it. Now, that's a kind of a radical thing because you're never going to eat and you're going to starve to death. It's the difference between having a preference to eat a chapati and having the attachment to each chapati. Can you, can you notice where you're attached to being in the world? In the Gnostic Gospels, Christ says you have to kill your parents. That doesn't mean you literally kill them, but you let go of that attachment. One time I went to this very famous Vedic astrologer and he looked at my chart and he started laughing. And he said, Ramdev, it must be so difficult to be you because you love God so much and you love the world so much and you're always caught between those two things, <laughs> which he kind of nailed it. I mean, imagine, and that's probably the truth for a lot of us, that we, we really are very deeply committed to the spiritual path and at the same time, there are so many things about the world that are just completely fascinating, that there's so much information, there's so much beauty, there's so many remarkable human beings that we get lost in all the story of it all. The next stage of the path of devotion is the path of Tantra, where in the beginning, in that first stage where we're invoking, we're trying to remember who God is, and then in the second stage, we're in this relationship with God. In the third stage, in this tantric stage, everything is God, including you and me, including Dale, who can't feel his heart all the time because of COVID. That's God, too. Here's this incredibly beautiful, very short poem from Hafiz. Know the nature of your beloved. In his loving eyes, your every thought, word, and movement is always, always beautiful. In God's eyes, everything we do is beautiful. Everybody. The most horrible thing that somebody does, God sees the perfection in it all. So that can the heart be so open? The nature of the open heart has defining qualities back in the heart stage that we just talked about. The heart is spacious, it's connected, and it's warm. The heart becomes so spacious that we begin to let go of the eye fixation and we begin to see that it is all, it's all perfect. I am God even when I'm clunky. <laughs> You're God even when I don't like you, right? <laughs> and for many of us, we can see God in the images on our altar. We even begin to see God in the people we love, but it's often harder to see God in ourselves because we're privy to all those angry, selfish, inadequate, cowardly thoughts that we have. Even that cannot separate us from our innate wholeness. 
even that is an expression of wholeness. The path of the heart is beginning to be open to a complete loving surrender to even those places in ourselves without judging, with realizing that it's all a face of Maharaji. It's the difference between Tantra and yoga. The first two stages are yoga, the yoga of meditation, the yoga of devotion. In Tantra, we're not trying to control things. We're not trying to do a better job. We're surrendering into the realization that we are that, that we are in love with, and that everybody else is. Another, another quote here by Hafiz. Now is the time to know that all you do is sacred. Now, why not consider a lasting truth with yourself and God? Now is the time to understand that all your ideas of right and wrong were just a child's training wheels to be laid aside when you can finally live with veracity and love. Now is the time for the world to know that every thought and action is sacred, that this is the time for you to compute the impossibility that there is anything but grace. Now is the season to know that everything you do is sacred. Imagine that. So that in the beginning of practice, we need training wheels. We need the Ten Commandments. We need the yamas and the niyamas. We need these things that say, don't do stuff that creates duality. Don't go around killing people and stealing and committing adultery and hating people. Because when you're doing those things, the mind gets all activated. The mind gets unstable. There's me and them. So that in the beginning, we pay attention. We do. We try to control our lives. What goes into our mouths, what comes out of our mouths how we breathe, how we think, so that the mind becomes stable enough to realize the spaciousness of the heart. And then the heart becomes so spacious and so connected that this tantric reality is revealed. We don't have to control anymore. It's all sacred. Maharaji would get really angry. He'd get really sad. The one thing he didn't ever get was afraid. I've been around a lot of saints. I've seen all the all the mandala of possible emotions except for fear because fear is based on separation but sometimes anger and sadness is the appropriate response without attachment to the what's happening in the world yoga teaches gradually eliminating obstacles through control suppression with awareness if you will but what we're talking about here is going beyond suppression that it's all an expression of the divine, every bit of it. Are we approaching devotion from a sense of poverty or from a sense of fullness and abundance? Very often we're trying to open our heart and working with the heart from a sense of poverty. I'm inadequate. I need God to fix me. I need to have a deeper kind of love. And once again, that's totally an illusion. It is a delusion that you need to change who you are. Maybe it'll be a lot more comfortable when you realize that you're perfect, but the perfection is always and already existing. At this stage of Tantra, we do deity practice. We imagine Avalokiteshvara. We imagine Red Tara. We imagine Hanuman or Christ or the Divine Mother. And we imagine loving them so much that we become them and that we begin to use our relationship with the relative deity 
to merge with the absolute deity. It's just that the relative deity, all these notions of these deities, all these pictures and statues that I've got behind me on the bookcase and over on my altar over there, they're tools to open the heart so we realize that it's not something out there. That Maharaji wasn't some guy in India who had a body and he died. He was a representation of infinite consciousness, as is each of us. So Tantra means to weave. We're weaving this truth into daily life. We're integrating wholeness into our every action and thought and speech. We're opening to grace in every moment. We're catching hold of that first moment of perception rather than naming it and getting caught in a story about it. What we've done now, before we get to the last stage of non-dual devotion, is we've created a devotional path where, first of all, we're priming the pump. We're in invocation stage. We're developing trust. We're reaching out to receive enough love that we begin to trust that we can die into love. We can let go of the ego because we're trusting love. We have this loving relationship with the deity, with the, with the practice, with the dharma, with the truth. And as that relationship deepens, we see that it's not even just the relationship, that the truth is that it's all that, that we are that, that we are that love, that everybody is that love, everybody is that truth. When we ask, who am I? As Ramana suggests, that the answer is all of this, that I am existence, consciousness, and bliss. Satchitananda, there's nothing that I am not, and that there's nothing that you are not, and that you and I are not connected. We go beyond connection into oneness. There is one consciousness, one truth. And we're using the heart to go into that one truth. And then finally, there's what we could call non-dual devotion, which is kind of tricky because there's not even an I anymore who's feeling devotion. We're resting in the wholeness, which is the which is love. Devotion has brought us to the point where it's all one. Maharaji, again and again, you'd ask him this question and that question. And again and again, he would say, sub-ek, sub-ek. It's all one. It's all one. Anger, love, confusion, Hanuman, Christ, ordinary person. It's all one. The only thing that's important is how much you love God. Meditate like Christ. Christ was lost in love. He was one with all beings and he had great love for the world. He gave his body so that all people could receive the Dharma. Serve me by always remembering God. Can we go to that place? This non-dual devotion is something that it's hard for us to live in 24-7, but it's very useful. It's very growthful to take short bursts of surrendering into non-duality, letting go of the eye, nobody meditating, nothing is a distraction, nothing to do. It's the most restful thing in the world. If the mind gets distracted, the distraction is still awakened mind. There's nothing that's not the awakened mind. That You just keep surrendering it to this is it, this is it. This is the one reality, this is the one reality. And then we have to come back to our ego to do the income tax, probably. It's kind of hard to, for most of us to do income taxes from the state of non-duality, or it's, it's hard maybe to get into fight with your spouse from a state of non-duality. And Okay, so any comments or questions now about all of these, all of these stages of the path of devotion? The invocation stage of reaching out, the, 
the heart stage of a juicy relationship, the tantric stage of I too and you too are that one. And finally, there's no I or you. Any comments? Ramdev? Yes. I just want to ask you, I think you had a similar experience myself. As much as you loved your guru, I know you had the, the Christ as almost something greater. And I found as much as I can do the, the practice, when I step back and I start my devotion to, to Jesus, I go back almost backwards sometimes as opposed to the Ramana or Nisargadatta or these great gurus that we've, we love and respect. So do you worship Maharaj? What do you mean by going backwards? I'm a little confused. Well, in other words, I, I know that for me, for, for the, the awareness, the consciousness, Christ is the I am, the, the inner awareness or consciousness. Right. At the end of the day, I, I, I can't explain it. It's a childhood thing. Mother died at five, left me with Jesus. She went to church every day. She was in my heart. She taught me love. But I had to go and study. I, I had to study the East and study the gurus. But I, if I, I can't bow to the feet, even of Ramana, as opposed to Jesus. Okay. That's a, it's a question. Okay. Well, Carl Jung said that to reach full integration of your personality, you need to go back to the religion of your childhood, which I think is a really interesting notion. And that certainly, fundamentally, Ramana and Christ and Nisargadatta and Maharaji are all representations of the same being. But for, and as I've said a lot of times, I went to India to get away from Jesus and Maharaji gave me a Christian mantra. But what I'm saying is that, like when Maharaji died, there was a great sadness that I would never be with him again. But there was also kind of a relief that I didn't feel regret that he was in India and my butt was in California. And I wish that my butt was closer to his butt, right? So it's, I think it's easier when there are these contemporary figures like your teacher Ramana to see him as a man who is channeling the truth, whereas Christ, did he even say any of those things in the Bible? It's not really clear that he did. It's Christ is more a, a meme for pure consciousness as, as opposed to a person. There's Christ and there's Jesus, and that's a whole other conversation. I've got pictures of Maharaji around, but I al also remember there was a story where he would, he would kick us out of the ashram for a few days because he said, I get attached to you. So I don't want to get attached. So I'll come back for two days, which I found quite remarkable that he would be attached to me. But he said, don't come back for two days. And one of the women in our group, I won't mention her name, but she thought, I love Maharaji so much that I'm just going to climb over the wall. And be because I'm so devoted, he's not going to kick me out. Right? So she goes over to the temple and there's a, eight-foot wall around the temple to keep the monkeys and the bandits out. And she comes climbing over the wall. And there's, there's a guy in India called the Chokiadar. He's like the gatekeeper. And Maharaji saw so-and-so climbing over the, over the wall. And he started yelling, get her out of here, get her out of here. And then he turned to somebody and she said, 
he said, they don't understand. They think I'm this body. Right. So it's easier to think that Maharaji is the body and Ramana is the body. We've got photographs of them. You don't have a photograph of Jesus. You got the, the Shroud of Turin. Who knows what the heck that is? You've got these drawings of people that he looks like somebody that stepped out of Jesus, Jesus Christ Superstar, whatever the play was. Right. <laughs> and Christ is more, it's like, it's like, it's like the meme of wholeness. It's like the metaphor. So, I mean, that's the way it is to me that Christ and Maharaji are the same thing, but it's easier to, it's still like Maharaji was that guy. And I've got stories about being with him and I've got quotes that he actually said in books by Ramana, who I love so dearly. Ramdev, yeah. I got a comment or yeah, yes. comment, I guess, question. Um, so this last week I had an experience that probably would still fall in that first stage although the heart was very much open and, and uh, accessible. And it was around this property that I, that I bought in the south of France that has a, a large garden with some very tall trees. And my deal with the meditation center next door is they get the house, I get the garden. But then I come back after being gone a few days and there's a van parked in the garden underneath the big tree. <laughs> My tree. <laughs> exactly. So the, the, the eye making or the mama, mama kara, the, the mind making mind, mind, mind ego first came up and, and, you know, the thoughts were like, couldn't they have at least asked me if this van could park there? Um, and at the same time, you know, it's 100 degrees during the day. And after about 24 hours, also I could really feel it was a young, it was a young couple that were sleeping in the van. Um, and they were also volunteering at the same uh, center next door. And I could feel my heart more and more open up to the, the, the giving of the shade, you know, this land that, that I have so that they could be more comfortable. Um, but it was like a little bit of a, you know, which wolf do you feed? You know, they were in conflict sort of a thing for at least a day. But then there was this third part of me, kind of this higher part of me, I could say, that knew that the heart was right. This is what I wanted. I wanted to give them, you know, just stay there as long as you want. That felt the best. But I had to work with this other part of me, you know, that's still locked in capitalism and mind, mind and all this kind of stuff. It took about two days and I didn't take any action other than being kind of snarky at one meal where I joked about something and like having a van in your garden when you come home. I kind of said it like that and a couple of people sort of caught it. Um, but so I'm kind of, you know, following more the Theravadan sort of approach, just sticking with that one stage, which I believe can bring you all the way to the end. You don't need to even do those other three. I think, in fact, they, the early early Buddhism has actually also four stages, the final one being an arhant, which probably is the same as the non-dualist. Um, but it feels like more like a slow process. It's not like annihilation. It isn't like, you know, cut my ego off. It took time. It took patience. 
And though at the end of about two days, it was gone and the heart took over. And I told, you know, and they were a little worried. And I said, you guys can stay there. I go, it's a privilege that you're able to be under that tree and be shady. And I'm able to offer that to you. So I don't know. It's my guess. My question is, if there is a question there really is, though, can it just be slow? (laughs) You know? So, yeah, definitely it can be gradual. I mean, gradual, yeah. sometimes sometimes there's a, a, a sudden awakening. But going back to what I was saying right in the beginning there, that this devotion to awareness, when you have that, you begin to feel during those two days, you begin to gradually feel the difference between the way you were describing what the mind was saying, the capitalist mind, and what the heart's saying, mm-hmm. and how that the mm-hmm. capitalist mind, when you're... When, when you're lost in that, it doesn't feel good. It sucked. It sucks. So and it that, sucked. And that <laughs> in, in, in Buddhism, there is this often unspoken understanding that we have innate goodness and innate tenderness, innate wholeness. And that just by having attention, just by having awareness of what's going on, there will be a natural movement toward what is right and good. Because mm. when you're doing the other... And you're paying attention. It doesn't feel good. Yeah, right? and the other it, one felt so sweet, so just tender, I and mean, it felt so awesome. It was clear, but yet it was like the just my tendencies, the habits. I don't know, whatever. It took you know forty. It didn't. It, why did it take forty eight hours? It might have even taken long. It might have been seventy two hours. I don't know. It took a bit before I finally could let you know. I could suggest the practice of you feeling compassion for the part of yourself that think it should have taken less time, Mm, (laughs) right? So so that you're saying, you know, I've been meditating. I'm a meditation teacher. It took me 72 hours to let go of this. And if I were really good, it would have taken 72 seconds, right? Well, no, I'm not. But yeah, I'm not saying. I'm just saying. I'm just being, I'm just surprised. I'm kind of surprised. It was so clear. One was so juicy and sweet. That way, but that one took 24 hours to feel, though, by the way. It right. took me a day to feel my heart. And then once I felt my heart, it still took a day to finally take any action. Right. Anyways, that was it. That's all. Yeah. But um, it was very clear. What you're teaching was very, very clear, though. The heart, the heart is awesome. That, that was very clear. So that, once again, there are three defining qualities of the open heart. It's a spacious heart. It's a connected heart. It's a warm heart. One can do a practice. You're going through your day and you pick one of those and you're asking, am I feeling, is my heart feeling spacious? Mm -hmm. If it's not, if it's feeling contracted instead of spacious, okay, I'm feeling a contracted heart. What's going on in my body? Oh, there's tightness in my belly or what's going on? I'm feeling ownership of my shade or whatever it is, you know, and you begin to notice that you begin to become, it brings you more quickly to awareness of the obscuration that eventually my feeling is that eventually devotion becomes addictive devotion to awareness, uh, having that open hearted feeling becomes addictive that you become crazy for anything, but that once you've Mm -hmm. had that experience, it's all downhill. It might be a bumpy ride. It might be a long ride. But once you really felt that connection, you want that like you want air to breathe, Mm. right? Mm. And that it's going to, who knows how long it's going to take, maybe a bunch of lifetimes. 
but you're on that path now. And I mean, even in a more extreme way, they say in, in Theravada thought that once you have the first moment of awakening, that at most it's going to be seven more lifetimes. Once you have that that uh, stream entry, right, that you've you've had in a more mm-hmm. extreme sense, a, a complete taste of one mind, then it's all downhill. Even though you're back, you're angry again and you're sad again, but you're you're not caught in those things like you were before because it's always in the context of I've had that other experience. Hmm. So even though you were having that experience of capitalist brain, capitalist brain, it's in the context of you having had a lot of spacious meditation and you can't take it completely seriously. You're kind of watching yourself do this kind of dumb thing or this kind of kind of clunky thing. You say, why am I doing that? I mean, it doesn't feel good, but there's a there's a samskaric momentum behind doing that until you're done doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's really what I think is. So yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Ramdev. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ramdev, uh, Gail has her hand up. I think I wrote to you that I I severely broke my ankle. About yes, you six did. Weeks ago. Yeah, you did. So I'm still really dealing with that. So I found this discussion interesting. I'm not in COVID brain fog, but I'm still in a kind of brain brain fog, my kind of concentration, because, you know, there's like all this energy, I think, in my body going to my to my ankle um, to heal it on a regular basis, I'm assuming. So, um, but I definitely like, I appreciated the discussion you just had because, I mean, there's definitely, what I would describe as like my awareness contracts, like, way before you know I can stop it because I'm either in pain or discomfort or I'm struggling to get across the house using a walker or my thoughts are contracting because I live alone and I'm trying to get through this. And obviously those things don't bring me any peace. And so then when I when I take the time to center, then I exactly what you're describing about getting in touch with my heart, getting in touch with loving spacious awareness brings me relief and brings me a sense of connection. But then the, you know, but then it doesn't take very long for me to sort of contract back into like, when is this going to get better? Am I going to have a fully healed ankle? What if I can't walk? <laughs> so as you're talking right now, can you drop into the heart as you're, yeah. talk, as you're talking about this? It seems like as you're talking, you're in the pain of it. Right. I'm in some discomfort right now. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it might be really um, uncomfortable when you're dying. Yeah. Having mm-hmm. COVID, having a broken ankle, having somebody parking in your shade. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the awareness isn't quite the same as when you're meditating. But can you bring that sense of some spaciousness, some sense of connectedness, even when you're talking about how difficult it is? So that you're not talking about something, you're talking from that place i'm i'm kind of getting you're asking how how can you deal with this more skillfully is that what you're asking well i mean i think you're getting at the question because it does i i what it feels like to me is there's a contraction yeah and that there is kind of an either or you know either i'm able to be you know i relax i'm in bed i try to get myself comfortable you know like i have to get my body to feel okay so i can then be more spacious um and be more aware. And then that does bring me peace, but yeah, on the regular basis, it's so quick that I'm 
what I would say more obviously body identified and personal self-identified worried about myself. And so, yes, how could I be more skillful or I, I don't even, yeah, I'm not really sure, but any, any suggestions are welcome. Yeah. Well, uh, a couple of days ago I had an MRI to, not that I'm sick at all. It was, it was a diagnostic thing. Uh, my mother and my brother died of pancreatic cancer. So they like to look at my pancreas every year to make sure I don't have that. And I don't know if you ever had an MRI, but it's very uncomfortable. You're in a tube that's like two inches from the top of your nose lying on your back. They strap you in so you can't move anything. And there's really loud, random noises, and you have to hold your breath for long periods of time. It's like it's, like a, it's designed to make you uncomfortable. So it was like it was like practicing. Can I can I be present and relax in this super uncomfortable situation? It was like a game. Can I can I keep letting go? And particularly the 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 thing of holding your breath. If you don't do it well enough, you have to start a sequence over again. So you're in the tube longer. We all have these challenges, whether it's a broken ankle or, you know, I, when I talk too much, I still start coughing because there's still some lung involvement. You were saying that you needed to try to get comfortable so that you could open to it. And once again, when you die, it might be super uncomfortable. You might be in an automobile accident or you might be lying on the floor of the local Walgreens or something. And they're, they're ripping your shirt off and there's some strangers breathing in your mouth when you're dying. I mean, think about that possibility. Each moment is preparation for dying. Each moment is an opportunity to practice. And we've been talking today about devotion. We can go back even what's the the foundation of all this is being embodied, maybe getting grounded and centered. Inhabiting the lower chakras is a way of learning to trust the vast spaciousness of the open heart is what's necessary. Of, of going back to the beginning. Maybe you have to go back to the before the beginning and ask, what is your motivation? What do you really want? What is your life about? Suzuki Roshi said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. What's the most important thing for you? I would guess it's being free or you wouldn't be in this group and we wouldn't have had the discussions we've had about your your practice over the over the last year or two. So if in fact that's what you really want and then you're getting sidetracked by it's really uncomfortable to be in a body with a broken ankle. Find some surrender into that motivation. I want to be free, even though there's pain in my ankle, even though it's uncomfortable to be in my body right now. I mean, I'm kind of trusting that having brain fog and when I sit down to meditate, my mind doesn't calm down almost immediately the way it always used to do that that's going to come back. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'm this kind of crazy person for the rest of my life. Good luck to everybody else, but maybe that's the way it is. Do I resist that? Do I get angry about that? Do I get frustrated about that? Do I try to find the right combination of drugs so that goes away or whatever? It's the basic question. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like the way it is here because of my body or my relationships or the weather or my bank account or whatever it is. What do I do about it? There's a path here. There's a path that works. And the only problem with the path is it only works if you do it. <laughs> it's like you've got to remember to practice. Distraction works temporarily. If you want to have a couple glasses of wine, if you want to watch shit programs on Netflix till your eyeballs bleed, then you go for it. You can do that. We all like to do that sometimes. But eventually, 
we get back to the place where that's not working. Temporarily suppressing the pain, it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. Can we deal with it directly? Do we have a deep enough motivation? Do we remember what it feels like to be in the heart deeply enough that we're going to do the programs? 